Rolling. Renegades. Andre and I had this big idea. Why isn't this a CE? CE by podcast. Mind blowing. People don't even know people like her exist. Renegades. I had to have the people who didn't believe in me. Between one day and the next, everything changed. Somebody found you. Thank God they found you. Shining a light on those people. And by the way, you're going to be inspired. You can't contain this, Sybil. You can't contain it. Nurses know how to solve shit. Nailed it. Renegades. Welcome to the Renegade Podcast, a revolutionary approach to continuing education for nurses by nurses who are shining a light on the innovators, the creatives, the renegades who are blowing up the boxes that the rest of the world is still trying to think outside of. On today's podcast, we have Amber Moore. She has a long and meaty resume, especially in the specialty of the OR nursing. In one shape or form, she is also an epic credentialed trainer. She's also uh, been in management and surgical interventional services, clinical educator, expert witness, interesting things. But, but those things are only the vehicle through which the Amber Moore is delivered. <laughs> Amber Moore leads with a moral compass. And that is the biggest takeaway from this podcast, I think. And also the way in which she became a nurse, what inspired her to become a nurse through challenges and through how she gained from loss. I know you are going to be inspired by Amber Moore and, and how easy it is to discern your yes, no, when you lead with your moral compass. And don't forget, if you're a nurse and you want a CE credit for listening to this podcast, head over to renegade.pro, that's R-N-E-G-A-D-E dot pro, sign up and get your CE. Enjoy Amber Moore. Amber, the suspense has been killing me. Oh. Hi, Amber. Hi, how are you? Because Antra said so much about you. And So Karen, I met Amber because I was telling you she was a resource nurse at the time that I met her. And she, you know, so the resource nurses, they would go to all the different operating rooms in the legacy system. And so what is a resource? Nurse. What is a resource nurse? Well, she's an OR yeah. nurse, but the resource nurse, you know, fills in, in all the hospitals in the system. Where okay. Like an internal traveler, like for lack right. of a better understanding, yeah. like you're, a, you're an employed traveling nurse. Yeah. Ter- terms mean different things, different places. Cause my mind first went to, you're like a, a float nurse. That's what we call them back. Yeah. In the kind of. Kind but of. you you don't go outside of the OR. Like it's right. always dedicated in the operating room, which is and nice. So, and so I met her and she was like, um, I took a care and I'm like, well, she's like the baddest ass OR nurse there ever was. <laughs> <laughs> More like biggest pain in the ass nurse. You know? No, like No, wait. Well, no. <laughs> why what made her badass? She, she well, I just remember like you were always, always first and foremost an advocate for the patient. So if somebody wasn't doing what they were should have been doing, Amber was always on it, and it was really like you were kind of a role model for me because I was like, oh right, like 
this is how you have to be in an operating room. Like you yeah. cannot you basically take no prisoners. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just kept always thinking like this person's naked and asleep. <laughs> like your whole job is to be their voice while they can't speak right. for themselves. So it's like, you got to, I would want someone to do that for me or my family. Like, and I just, you know, there's some slippery buggers. I grew up at a teaching hospital and there's just lots of, I don't know, bad actors and misinformation and interesting practices. And you're constantly teaching and people don't know what they don't know, the residents and the med students and stuff. So I just, I don't know. I had been burned enough by the time I was in resource pool. I was like, oh no. Well, that's, <laughs> that's, an, in- like a hawk. that's an interesting place to start. Uh, you weren't always like that. Oh, I'm sure if you ask my friends and family, I've <laughs> Well, yeah. Okay. Well, what, what would they say? Um, I think I was, to be honest, I was pretty conditioned as a kid to take care of other people as quite honestly, I find most nurses are. So it was a pretty easy transition to go into a career where I could actually get paid for it. <laughs> yeah. What was your, what was your family like? Um, I mean, where did that conditioning to care for people come from? We had, we just had a lot of chaos, lots of, um, not like my mom's going to be listening to this, but my mom is a very active alcoholic. And, you know, as kids, we kind of took care of each other and took care of her. And my parents split when I was like four. So it was, you know, my brother and I kind of against the world. We thankfully had really, my dad was still very much involved and had super, super amazing grandparents who, you know, took us every weekend and gave us all the very traditional parts of childhood that kids should have. But, you know, the day-to-day life was pretty chaotic. So well, you learn really quick how to take care of yourself and you learn really quick, like everything you're saying is so like reminiscent of my own childhood. Have you guys ever shared stories, like war stories from your childhood? We uh, like, we've glanced, like touched over it here and there. Mm -hmm. I think there's just like knowing understanding amongst (laughs) children of adult alcoholics where you're just like, Oh yeah, I, I get you. (laughs) Like, I see you. I understand. Totally. And you, and you learn how to take care of yourself and you learn how to be resourceful and you learn how to figure shit out. And so it makes a really easy transition into the operating room, right? (laughs) Yeah. You're kind of forced to like, you have to troubleshoot and you're independent Mm -hmm. and you actually quite frankly, don't want help most of the time Mm -hmm. because it just makes things complicated and messy. And it does, it, it serves you well in some parts of OR nursing and in other parts, it's just disastrous. Like I was just thinking back today on like what my early years in the OR were like. And I was, I should have been fired like a thousand times. You guys like, I I can't even believe that Amber. Why? Like I I was, (laughs) tell us. (laughs) I I kind of already know where this is going to go and how it's going to be helpful, but keep going. I don't know. It was, I was such a fierce patient advocate, Mm -hmm. but my mind was very black and white. And I was, I was very, I don't know. I was driven. I was motivated to learn and take on new things. And I wanted more, but I would get frustrated when things didn't move at the pace that I wanted them to. And then I was 20 when I started in the OR, I wasn't even old enough to drink when they hired me. Like (laughs) I was, I was the youngest person on staff besides the unit secretary. And I just, I worked my ass off to get out of my parents' house. And so I just put my head down and worked, 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 worked. And then I finally was done with school very early 
and had a job and bought a house. And then it was party time. Like I grew up in my formative years in my early twenties, like growing up in a manual was when I did what most kids do in college. But I was like working two jobs in college and taking 19 credits a term. And it would just, there was no time for that because I was so desperate to get out. So I did all the, you know, reckless, crazy things, partying and all that stuff in my early 20s. And just, you know, (laughs) getting in fights with my coworkers verbally, (laughs) like just nonsense, just total nonsense, just butting heads at every corner. But you made, but you were formidable. Like, and I think that, I think that, I think that served you really well as an advocate for your patients because, you you know, it was like, don't fucking mess with the. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It definitely, I mean, there's parts of it that were to my benefit and it's just ingrained in who I am, but I definitely grew up and learned a ton and. I I don't know how I was given as many opportunities as I was within our corporation because I don't know. I I think I just got really lucky to a certain degree that, and I had some people who kind of tapped me on the shoulder and helped show me the way and helped raise me, so to speak. Yeah. Like that girl's a fire hose. We just got to aim it. Yeah. Yeah. Like they just have to take, so it doesn't take us all down. They were like, okay, well, she's got all this energy. We just need to point it in a constructive place and not where she's going to burn the building down. So I just, I just want to go back to this part because you said, I asked uh, what made you that way? Because when Antra met you, you were already this formidable thing. And it sounds like you pretty much were when you started, but you said, well, if you ask my family, so was yeah. there a time when you were like, as in my family would say that I was always like that, uh, but I, I heard so. you weren't, but maybe I heard the wrong thing. Now, I feel like I've always been this way, to be honest. Like I, I come from, I'm very much my father's daughter. And when I, the things about him that make me crazy, my husband will laugh at because he's like, that is you. Like everything that he's doing <laughs> that makes you hard to help and hard to assist. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's you to a T. So I think I've always been headstrong and I've always wanted to sort things out on my own. And then you add in the kind of social situation of my immediate family dynamic and it just made it like the breeding ground for becoming who I was. Do you think that's the thing that changed everything for you in terms of like where you wanted to go in your career was because of where you were in your family dynamics and... Yeah, it's kind of, I think it, I think that family dynamic laid the foundation, but I actually had a really pivotal um, car accident that changed, that was like a fork in the road for me that led me down the path of nursing. And it's, it's a long, complicated story, but basically I was, it was like two days before I started high school, I had been with my dad and his, that side of the family over Labor Day weekend. And we were driving back from Bend And my brother, who was 16 at the time, um, just got his license, you know, supervised driving with my family in the car. He had taken some allergy medicine for his hay fever and he fell asleep. This is like pre, you know, you could still buy Sudafed over the counter and things would make you drowsy and so on. So he fell asleep while we were driving and we went off a ravine and we were in the middle of absolute nowhere, like nowhere. We were, it took us an hour and a half to get a police officer to us. And meanwhile, my grandfather was in the front passenger seat, like crushed from the waist down. I was unbelted. I don't know how I wasn't ejected. Like 
I got pinned in the vehicle and bounced around like the whole roof of the car was gone. I mean, it was like, you know, mm. you talk about that like golden hour of helping people in trauma and it was pretty significant. And um, I ultimately ended up getting airlifted to uh, the hospital in Madras. But we were, I mean, we were basically on the backside of the Warm Springs Indian Reservation, like right as the desert turns into the tree line on the back of Hood. And I remember the, there was a, uh, like three people who came down, climbed down this like super steep ravine to help us. And one of them was a nurse from Meridian Park. Mm. It was Robin and she worked in the ER and she had nothing on her, but some like bath towels. I mean, we like blocked traffic on the highway. We closed down highway 26 for like four hours. Like it was a whole thing. And, um, I just remember she crawled into this horrific scene, got into the back of this big car with me. And I, when I stopped moving in the vehicle, I had cut my forehead from like here to here. For the folks at home, she's pointing at the left crown toward and dragging it to her left forehead over her left eyebrow. That's a long way. (laughs) I had like an eight inch gash. Like my forehead was essentially split in two down to the bone. And when I kind of came to, because I had been sleeping when we went off the road um, and realized everyone was heard and I could hear and kind of see and smell what was happening, like I couldn't see out of my left eye. And I'm just thinking I'm blind, like you know, I'm a kid, like, oh, I've got my eyes gone. I'm doing all this. And she's like, you're okay. She talked me down from thinking, you know, the worst. And then this nurse sat with me for almost two hours until they could get me out and get me airlifted. And she knew I had a, you know, concussion. She knew she needed to keep me awake. And it was like a hundred degrees. I lost all this blood And she had me sing like my favorite songs over and over again, just to keep me lucid. She's because she didn't want me to go into shock and, you know, pass out. But I think that moment watching her so selflessly come down into a space that was so dangerous. And quite frankly, she could have just kept driving and she had nothing on her, but her wits and some bath towels and totally saved me. Like legit saved me and was there for hours before we got any medical help. Like there was a literal police officer from the reservation standing outside the vehicle, trying to take a statement. Meanwhile, like my grandfather's crushed in the front seat. And I'm like, "Uh, can you get the license plate number later? (laughs) Can you get an ambulance? Like come help us. Like it just, I don't know about that act. It was so, it just felt so selfless. I was like, oh man, if I ever had the courage to do what she did, like, and it was funny because years later I ran into her when I was at Meridian Park. This is in Oregon. Yeah. Of our listeners. Yeah. In the cafeteria, I ran into her. Oh, and did she remember you? She, it, she didn't at first, but I recognized her immediately. You did. And kind of jogged her memory and she was like, oh my God, like she didn't recognize me because my yeah. you know face was basically split in two, but. Yeah, it was very serendipitous. That was like, you know, if you back to your earlier question about how did it start? I think, you know, the family dynamic of kind of being conditioned to take care of other people. And then that moment and seeing what you can do with some skills. I mean, that's where you can aim the fire hose. Yeah. Right. So it was, that was my pivotal moment when I went, I knew in high school, I wanted to be a nurse. I just had to figure out 
what kind of nursing? Well, it was the, I mean, I think the OR is, it's funny that that's the thing that changed, you know, kind of your course and the OR seems like the perfect place for you. You know what I love? I realized I did a bunch of job shadowing in high school and like early college. And thankfully back when you could like really easily (laughs) do those things and you just ask the right people. And um, I got really lucky in that I recognized right away in an operating room in particular that I was the most attracted to what the nurses were doing. I was like, uh, surgeons for the birds, anesthesia, no thanks. Like, (laughs) I was just most attracted to the person who, who was essentially like conducting the room. Mm -hmm. And I love the concept in the OR where people come in broken and you fix them and they move on. Like you actually feel like you've done something at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Like there was so much immediate gratification as compared to watching someone languish in a bed. I'm just like, Oh, I can't come back and see this guy in his bed for the sixth day in a row, you know? Yeah. So it was very, I just knew my personality that it would really be more satisfying just because of the nature of operating room nursing. Well, and you started in trauma, right? Yeah. So I, I mean, <laughs> and you started thing. in trauma, trauma, like I yeah. heard some of your stories. Oh my God. Well, <laughs> yeah. So I, um, they didn't offer OR as an option in my nursing school. Like everyone was going to med surge, family birth, you know, there was nobody interested in OR. I take that back. One other classmate of mine. And I basically begged and pleaded and got a senior practicum in the OR at Emanuel with Karen Underwood, who Mm -hmm. you know. Yes, I do know her. And she was my senior practicum, like preceptor for what it was like eight or nine weeks. And I knew immediately, I was like, this, I have to be at a trauma center. Like I have to be the manual, like the stuff that you get to do and see, you know, you're doing neonates, these like tiny little, you know, micro preemies all the way to, you know, hundred year old people. It was just beyond fascinating. I loved the energy. I loved the culture, which is very different than what it is now. Like it was the wild west back then. But yeah, I knew immediately. They actually, when I interviewed for the um, the RN resident, what's the equivalent of the RN residency now? They were going to offer me a spot at Good Sam, and I told them no. It's <laughs> like I'm not interested. I'm like, what twenty year old kid who's a new grad who's being offered a great job? I'm like, mm, I, I don't want this job if I can't be in a manual. Um, Why? What's what's Good Sam? Uh, Good Samaritan's one of our sister oh. hospitals. But, but it's, it's not, not a trauma, trauma center. center. Yeah. So I was just like, no, I, I have to be where the helicopters are. And <laughs> I just want to be where we have to go do, you know, mobile surgical and field extrications. And I, yeah, I definitely had that adrenaline junkie type. Itch. Oh my gosh. I feel like it I'm was, listening to myself, but in OR. <laughs> yeah. It was, it, it was, yeah, it was a perfect, <laughs> perfect place in many ways for, for me to grow up as a little baby nurse. And I knew just from having spent, you know, so much time there my senior year, like I knew if I could, if I could hang there, if I could make it there, mm-hmm. they would support me in learning how to scrub, which is not something I saw at other institutions. And I could work anywhere I wanted. Like you, you grow up in that OR, you can work anywhere you want in the mm-hmm. world. Yeah. They just do the sickest of the sick. 
Karen, do you have something? Because I have a question. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, um, we usually volley back and forth, but I'm just kind of hogging the show here. So <laughs> no, I, I, I have things I can ask, but you're love the energy. Go. <laughs> so, so I want to hear kind of what it was like to be 20 and to be a new baby nurse in a trauma hospital in a trauma OR. What, what, cause for me, I mean, I only worked at these 10 suite kind of middle of the road, not a lot of action hospitals. And while I loved what I did, I did not want to do trauma OR. Mm. So I like, I, I can remember you telling some stories just when we w- work together, but it just for, I think it's interesting for our listeners, especially anybody who's new and who wants to be an OR nurse. What is that like? Mm. Oh my gosh. Um, well, I will say I, ever since I first started there, there was no shortage of people who were willing to teach you if you were willing to learn. So while I was, you know, full of sass and uh, pretty, pretty sure of myself, I also, I don't know, I feel like I still would call out, like, I don't know what I don't know, but teach me, like, show me all the things. And in that team at that time, and even still to this day, like, people will show you anything if you're humble and you have a willingness to learn. So the more you put yourself out there, the more they would hold your hand and show you. And I, I was like gobbling it up. It was incredible. And then on top of it, it's a teaching institution. So the surgeons, anesthesia, everyone is in teaching mode. We're constantly narrating, talking about how and why we're doing what we're doing, you know, keeping each other out of trouble. And that's the other thing that I loved about the OR is like, especially for trauma, when you would get what's constitutes as a direct admit, like there's different tiers of how you get into the trauma system, different injury patterns or mechanisms at the scene. So for example, if there's a fatality in a car accident and you're in that car, but you survive, you're automatically a direct admit to our operating room. Like there's, you know, it's all structured. But when you get someone who's a direct admit, that means they're going to bypass, they're going to come off a helicopter or out of an ambulance and bypass the emergency room and get triaged in an actual OR. Because chances are they've got life-threatening injuries based on the mechanism or long extrication, or if you, I don't know, lose a limb, something like that. But they, um, it's like watching a NASCAR pit crew if you haven't seen it. I mean, it's like a, the most beautifully orchestrated chaos you can possibly imagine Every single person knows what they're doing and what their role is and they're forecasting and looking ahead. And it was just like the most beautiful dance I'd ever seen. And I was like, I want to be a part of this. And they also kept each other out of trouble. Like if any one person missed a step, dropped the ball, forgot something, couldn't find it, it was just all hands on deck. And it didn't matter what your discipline was or what your letters were behind your name. It was just everybody helped. And it was so fun to be a part of and so beautiful to watch. Like, I don't know. I still, I still, it still scratches that like adrenaline junkie itch for me. when I go up and I'll stand in the corner and watch and I'm like, oh, I shouldn't be in here. But it's it's so hard. It like, it triggers this like, you know, lizard part of my brain that's so primal. I'm like, oh yeah, let's go. Let's bring the chaos. Like, it's just not a good day at work until something real bad's happening. (laughs) It's the same. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I am the same way. I was like, I worked in trauma. I did flight nursing and I did ICU and I give, give me the code beeper. 
Yeah. <laughs> give, give me the coat reaper. <laughs> I'm like, You're like, at least my shifts will go by fast. Like, I'm, I'm yeah, gonna... that, but I, I hear you. It's, it's that camaraderie that is not, uh, there, there are few, there are few units or specialties in a hospital that have that kind of, you know, cause when you're out on the floors, I, you know, when I would get floated out onto a floor because they were short there and the ICU was, you know, fine staffed, I was scared shitless because my brain works very well, very focused in chaos. Yeah. Like, but if, if things are slow and I have to pay attention to eight different patients and eight different things and all those like that, I, I, I'm like, I'm going to kill someone. But if like, but if two people are dying in front of me, I'm good. I'm good. Like, yeah. Yeah, but there's that, but you, because in that atmosphere, like trauma OR or, you know, trauma or, you know, when something yeah. could go wrong at any moment and it is all hands on deck. I, it is addictive. I do, I, I understand what you're saying. It is, I well, do, I do miss it. I don't know. It's the OR, I've always told like new grads or people that are like, what's the OR all about? I'm like, listen, the operating room has nothing to do. Like on a day to day basis, the hardest part of being in an operating room is dealing with your teammates. Because they're the ones that are awake. <laughs> like you have, you have three minutes to establish a complete and total interpersonal relationship of absolute implicit trust with someone that you're about to make very cold and naked, right? They are a total stranger to you. And you're like, hi, stranger, I'm Amber. I'm going to take you to surgery and we're going to replace your hip or fix your broken back or whatever it might be. But you have 30 seconds to meet their family and three minutes to talk to them. And that's it. The rest of the time and the dynamic interpersonally and professionally is with getting along with your teammates mm-hmm. and understanding how to work within a team where there's a whole host of different players at all the time. I mean, it's not, it's, it's like being in the float pool for med surge and like the dynamics in peds is different than the dynamics in adults and dynamics in family. Like from case to case, room to room, you're working with a totally different culture of people and team every single day all day long. And it's amazing. Like you can learn so much. You can be irritated so much. (laughs) All the things can happen, but it's, I don't know of another environment like ours that offers that kind of variability, but it's, it's just a different dynamic. You know, if you are really warm, fuzzy, I love to spend a lot of time with my patients and do teaching. Like you're not going to really have that opportunity in the operating room. You know, I love talking to patients and learning their stories and helping advocate for them and explaining what it is I'm doing, but you just don't get the luxury of time, unfortunately. But you said something really important in the very beginning and you just kind of touched on it a couple of times just then. What is, uh, how do I word this? It, it seems like the most important thing, especially in the OR when somebody is cold and naked and asleep. But when you have three minutes, how do you establish that trust, which is not only uh, nice, it's really important for how they go under and how they recover and, you know, and how they come out and all that. So what do you do uh, that's different than the things that you see that you shouldn't do? Um, I I was just talking to a colleague about this the other day. I think one of the the key traits or characteristics you have to have to be a successful OR nurse, uh, not to say you're not going to have potentially bad outcomes or a a negative experience of some type, but the thing I felt like I've always held on to is a strong moral compass. 
like I've always had a really strong sense of like, I have to do the right thing for the patient, even if no one's watching. Hmm. Even if this patient never remembers me, even if I won't get a thank you from a surgeon, even if I have to say over time, like it doesn't matter. Like I still have to do the right thing no matter what, because their life depends on it. Like it's, and I mean, I know that's true for all nursing, but it's, I don't know, like, I feel like there's no, the patient's not watching you. Their family's not watching you. The surgeon's engrossed in what they're doing. Anesthesia is very busy. Like you as a nurse in OR, you're kind of at the bird's eye view watching all the things happen. And while it's not my job to give the anesthetic, I have to help advocate for the patient in that capacity. And I think it's easy sometimes in a, in a team dynamic like that to cut corners yeah. You know, I mean, we see it a lot and sometimes it doesn't matter, yeah. but if you don't have us, if you don't have that moral compass, and of course, everybody who's in an OR should have that moral compass. But I think it's really, I think you're right. It's necessary. Absolutely necessary. Just keeping focused on like what it is you're really doing there. Like this is a, like what we do every day is really dangerous. Like we work with, we're doing very risky things. We're, typically doing that on very sick people and we're dealing with very dangerous equipment, like Mm -hmm. super dangerous equipment. It's like, if you don't know what you're doing or don't have even the awareness that you're about to do something dangerous, like you're going to step in it big time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just super scary. And it's, I don't know, there's a lot of, um, I inherently love rules. (laughs) I'm a rule follower by nature and the OR has a ton of rules and that, that also scratches a really good itch for me uh, <laughs> because they're, they're validated by evidence. Like it's not just, well, we do it because we do it. It's like, I have to know why we're doing it and I'll keep pushing if someone doesn't give me a good answer. Like, well, why do we do it this way? Or why are we doing that? Like, let's look at another way to do it. You know, not to say there's one right way to do anything in the OR, but it's, I don't know. It's really guided by a, a, what I feel are a strong set of principles. And, you know, we're always open to change and learn new things, but it just, it get, you have such a decent foundation to start from that it makes it easy to at least, you know, make a, a solid attempt at doing the right thing. Just because we've got AORN, for example, like our national group is really robust and very involved and we have a huge practice and standards book you can follow that gets updated annually. Like, I don't know, there's just so much opportunity to start out with a good foundation, even if you've never done that kind of nursing. And then you add in, you know, a discipline to learn new things and a willingness to, to be humble and say, I don't know, but I'm willing to learn. Like I've never met an OR nurse who doesn't, isn't willing to teach. They just want to see expressed interest. You know, they're not going to spend time teaching you if you don't, Give a hoot. Do you think the new ones that come in are um, like now because you're the educator, correct, at Emanuel mm-hmm. in the operating room? Do you see that the new nurses coming in are are like that? They want it. They want to learn. They want to. Yes, um, I do see that, and I think the I think the hardest part right now is making sure that people understand what OR nursing really looks like on the day-to-day. Uh, I'll be honest, we've had a couple people come through that we've got almost to the end of orientation and they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go do medical sales. 
like they've left nursing altogether um, or they've pivoted and gone to a whole different discipline of nursing. And it's just, it's a little, what do you attribute that to? I think it's, I think some of it is um, access to the OR. I think it's really hard to get in and get job shadowing type scenarios or observe surgeries um, you know, we're kind of behind locked doors most of the time. Most people don't know how to get in unless they just happen to be caring for a patient on the floor who goes to surgery and they, you know, beg and plead. I mean, it's not integrated into any nursing curriculum that I've ever seen. Like they don't encourage it. Um, it can be hard to get senior practicum placements. It's just not a terribly easy place to access unless you have some kind of in. So like right now we have three nurses who've got no OR experience. They're what we would qualify as a transition nurse in our organization where they're not new to nursing, but they're new to the OR. And we basically would wait and marry them into the organization with a new graduate so they can get that simultaneous Periop 101 curriculum from AORN. And the nice part about doing it that way is that you can support them when they're in that novice state but even before we will consider someone as a transition nurse, we want them to come down and job shadow. Like I'm coordinating right now, three different, you know, days at a minimum a day, like come down and see what this type of nursing looks like, because it's, it's apples and oranges compared to what they're doing on the floor. It's a very different dynamic. Would you agree with that, Antra? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you, I kind of, I kind of got thrown into the OR because I was working in a, in the military in a PACU and I couldn't stand the complaining that went on. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like my patients in pain. So I figured it'd be better if I was in the OR. I like but, my patients to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> poor, poor patients. I wasn't a very good PACU nurse anyways, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely a culture and I think, um, your points of the moral compass and the team. Like I, I would get really frustrated when there was poor teamwork. That was really, really always a challenge. And, you know, when you have that compass and most people in the OR do, so, you know, it makes, it makes for um, most of the time, good team, good team dynamics. But I think like, that's it. Cause if you have a bad team, then, you know, stuff goes South quick. Yeah. Well, the other thing that I always thought about is like, you know, how does the average person find a surgeon? How, like, I look at my family, like people don't have a good way to vet a surgeon. (laughs) You know this, right? Yeah. They don't have a, like, they go to the the nearest hospital. Mm -hmm. They go to the place their neighbors and friends go to and their coffee, you know, mates and their book club friends. Like nobody knows anything or they go to whomever their primary cares referred them to. And they don't know these people. Like somebody dropped flyers off for their specialty clinic in the GP office. Like, I don't know, having seen both sides of it, you know, as a patient and as a nurse for so long, I'm just like, like, okay, I don't know how you ended up, you know, needing this procedure or meeting this surgeon, but like, I'm determined to give you the best care possible within my control, no matter what, like they still deserve, everybody deserves, you know, our A plus effort. So I don't know. I, a surgeon is not a surgeon is not a surgeon. And it's for the average person. There's just no way for them to pull that apart. They don't have yeah. access to that kind of inside. You just got to trust 
Well, that's, that's a really good. So how do people find the right one? How do they vet the ones beside, you know, your, your bridge club and Mary's been complaining about her gallbladder. And then, you know, Patty tells her where, you know, I got, well, that's your, that must be your gallbladder. I got mine out. And then Mary just thinks I have to go get my gallbladder out, but (laughs) nothing to do with, but how does somebody, I mean, both of you are good at, you know, how does somebody vet and know and look for a second opinion? And if you're a nurse that doesn't work in the OR, how do you guide someone to do the same? Yeah. I mean, this is a good question for Antra too, right? This is like the age old question of like, <laughs> how do you get good care? How do you even know what the right questions are to ask? How do you, I mean, you have, you have connections. That's how you get good care. Yeah. honestly, <laughs> I, I, Really? I would start asking. I mean, listen, there's a million of us, like, if I were a lay person and had no medical training, I would be asking my friends that are in the business. Like, I don't even care what degree of separation you are. Like I would just start asking, mm-hmm. you know, cause they're going to have some intelligence or access to someone inside who can be like, Ooh, uh, don't go there. Or, <laughs> Oh man, go to that guy. He does 10,000 hips a year. Like, yeah. you know, I just sometimes like Chris Nansen is a great example. You can rely yeah. on his, totally. his reputation in the community. Like the man is amazing. Like right. his bedside manner is incredible. His clinical, you know, outcomes are exceptional. Like I sent my mother-in-law to him, but he's he, all, and he's always about the team. So there's always right. that dynamic. Like there's never, you don't, you know, the hierarchy of the operating room is really not there in his room. I mean, yeah. it is, but he, he's all about the team. And that yeah. makes a difference. People yeah. will move water that your OR team, if you're a surgeon, your OR team will walk on water for you. If yeah. they know they're respected, know that they know what they're doing. Like, and it's always astounds me when, yeah. you know, staff in the OR get treated poorly because of it's like this, it's like they're missing something like, yeah. And it's, it's kind of like common sense. It's, mm-hmm. it's stress one oh one. People are stupid who are stressed. And if you're constantly under the gun or or afraid you're going to get yelled at or someone's going to make a critical comment, you know, just because they're in a bad mood or whatever, and you're on eggshells all the time, you're not going to be able to do your best. Yeah. Or speak up when like, you know, I mean, there's all those examples of like, what, wasn't it like Korean airlines where the second pilot was like, we're flying into the mountains. And, but because culturally he couldn't, it was unacceptable for him to speak up to the first, you know, lead pilot. They flew into the mountains. He's like, uh, <laughs> we're about to crash. You know, it's like, I'm kind of curious. I think it's, um, you know, for everybody listening to this, not just nurses, but what are, what are the inherent problems that you see in the operating room? And what do you think, um, how do you think those kinds of problems can be solved? Yeah. And start with the one you were just talking about, because that, that, like that, seems like a big problem when like the hierarchy and the nurses, like, do you do anything? What tell me about that problem first and then others. And then what do you do to, as like an educator, as a mentor, how do you affect change from within if you're able to at all? That's a good question. I will say in the big picture, I mean, I've been, I just had my 20th year in the OR. congratulations. Congratulations. I will say culturally the dynamic and the like, the hierarchy amongst the team is wildly different than it used to be. Um, I would say it was definitely more surgeon driven. When I started, it was like the surgeon was God. You bow down. You, it was <laughs> difficult to speak up. 
you certainly couldn't, you know, make a fuss if something wasn't right. It was kind of scary to question things. I mean, they were still throwing stuff. Like I, my preceptor, when I started had it, there was a surgeon who still worked there. He was about to retire who had literally thrown a knife at him. I mean, this was like 25, 30 years ago. You know, it's just, I think every nursing unit has those horror stories, but that doesn't happen now. Like it's just completely changed. Um, I think culturally the new physicians that are coming up are just, they know better. We do better. We know better as a, as a society, they just don't treat people like that anymore. Um, And I think people are, I don't know, I think they're generally more comfortable advocating. I don't know. I feel like we've kind of done a better job at finding our voice. They've made it, we've done a lot of institutional work to try to make it more comfortable to report situations, whether that's equipment shortages or bad behavior or, you know, what have you, like supplies out of stock. Like if there's a situation that's going to have the potential to affect patient care, we've set up a lot of mechanisms for staff to safely report that. Um, if they're not reporting it, I don't, I don't understand why. Like your implicit oath when you became a nurse in the state of Oregon is you're there to protect the public. That is the Nurse Practice Act and what your license is tied to. And so it's like, regardless of what you feel your obligation is to the surgeon or the hierarchy or the dynamic or your organization, the most important thing is your sworn protection of the public that you took when you got your license. doesn't matter who your employer is. Like, doesn't matter if your employer has a bad plan and they have a terrible policy or a bad practice. Like you are still obligated to do the right thing for the patient and do. And if you don't think it's right, you have an obligation to follow up. There's no way around that. So I don't know. I've just never understood the not reporting or not bringing stuff forward, even when it's terribly uncomfortable. (laughs) Do you feel like that? Do you feel like the staff that they do where you work? I think they do. Yeah. I think, I think the culture's, I think there's always room for improvement, but I think it's a thousand times better than it used to be. Really? Yeah. I think people always hope for um, anonymity when they report things that are difficult. And I'm like, there's not always a way around that. Like if you have an issue in a interpersonal issue with a surgeon, let's say in a room, like, and you need to report it to someone, um, whether it needs to be escalated up to medical staffing or just to your department leadership, like, the person you had an issue with is going to know it was you. Like, there's just no way to hide that. Right. I'm like, yeah, there's, it's not a mystery. They remember having a, you know, a difficult dis- discussion with you in the <laughs> operating room. Like, how would you, what would you say to a, I was going to say a young nurse, but I guess any, anybody um, who doesn't or is thinking about not because of that fear. So coming from somebody with a good dose of, I mean, from somebody like you with a good dose of unfuck with ability, yeah. right? You said yeah. it, it still might be uncomfortable or scary. What would you, you say to them to go, you really don't have a choice here and make them feel, see that too, you know? I, when it's come up for me professionally, the first thing I always tell them is like, like, I want you to remember how shitty this feels. Like, do you remember how you feel right now? Like this position you've been put in, for whatever reason, you know, someone was trying to cut a corner, someone was in a hurry, someone pushed you in a way or asked you to do a practice that you knew wasn't safe or wasn't, you know, the best thing 
for the patient. And it's a terrible feeling to be put in that position. I want you to remember that because not reporting it means someone else is going to be right where you are tomorrow, next week, next month. Like people who don't get any boundaries set in bad behavior continue with bad behavior. That's a good one. And I just can't, I I just can't be a part of it. And especially when these patients are trusting us with their lives. Like I'm not, I'm not going to play with that. So I always try to elicit like, okay, (laughs) if you can't speak up for this patient, can you speak up for your colleague who's going to be on call with this person in the middle of the night and maybe be asked to do the same shitty thing? Mm, That's "Mm." a great thing. It is so much easier to do things for other people than for yourself. Isn't it sometimes? Yeah. I mean, that's, you, that's a, that's a great way to put it. You just got to stop the, you have to shut it down. And it, you know, sometimes they just don't know. <laughs> and sometimes there's bad actors and people just have bad behavior, but I don't know. I just am not a fan of like letting things like continue. It's not the kind of environment I would want to work in. It's not well, the kind of environment I would want to get my care in. Like, I don't want to get care in an environment like that. Like, yeah. Well, the, Amber, the reason that there is a necessity for people like Andra and I, or, or, and you, an advocate, you know, a strong advocate within, but a private patient advocate without, the reason we exist is because people haven't spoken up. Yeah. No. I mean, really, it can boil down to nobody's demanded change. Nobody's demanded that at least the standard of care that's in the textbooks be delivered. Yeah. Well, and we we know better. Like, we're not... You know, we have inside information. We do know, we are expected to know the best practice. Like we are expected to know the policies and procedures. And, and if you don't know, that's okay, but you are expected to ask. <laughs> like you have an obligation to follow up for the sake of the patient. Like if, and I've had all sorts of bad outcomes, you know, and it, I, I don't know directly that any of them were related to me, but I've made mistakes of all types, but it's like the most important thing is that you just regroup and learn and set up a scenario, be part of the change to undo that. So it doesn't happen again to another patient or to you or a colleague or anyone else. Like one of the things that really frustrated me in the OR was, you know, if something, if there was, if there was, you know, a mistake or, um, or, a you know, a, a bad outcome or maybe not even a bad outcome, but just not an ideal outcome. It was, it always seems so secretive. Right. And Mm -hmm. it really bothered me. I mean, I left and I don't know what it's been like since I've been gone, but you know, why are we not teaching people in all of nursing? You know, when there's a mistake made, why are we not really sharing those things? Because I'll tell you what, if, if I was privy to something that happened to a patient that didn't happen in my room, boy, I wanted to know. And I, you know, and I was always like, I will never do that. I'm so glad that, you know, not so glad that happened, but so glad that I got to like, hear like, you know, what happened and what can we do to make it better? And what can we do to, you know, put in better practices? So I don't, you know, maybe you could. I think a lot of that is organizational. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it depends on your like, you know, executive level leadership and how they're willing, what their expectations are around like that, you know, airing of dirty laundry. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of that is hard to undo. So like we have, I have to say it, Emmanuel, right now, I have the most exceptional group of senior leaders I've ever seen in my 20 years. Like 
top to bottom. I, I could not be more supportive of everyone. You know, it's just incredible. And the energy and the expectation amongst my team is we're going to share what's happened. It's not punitive. It's not to shake my fingers and place blame. It's so that we can all learn because any one of us could have been in this situation. Or quite frankly, I probably have been in that situation. If you've been in OR long enough, like, you know, the same problems tend to repeat themselves because it's just the pitfalls we all step in. But yeah, I... I don't know what the hangup is there. Like a joint commission is a great example, right? How many joint commission surveys we've been a part of? I feel like I've done a million. And after every survey, if our sister campus would go through a survey, I'm like, aren't we, aren't we all just going to like put our cards on the table and say what, what we got dinged for? Cause every surveyor is different. Every finding is different. They might have a finding for good Samaritan and have a fine and a follow-up plan. Whereas that same issue at my campus, because it was a different surveyor might just be a slap on the wrist. Like every survey was so different and dynamic. And I'm like, this should be like, we should have a full family meeting here and be discussing all the things, (laughs) you know, because if they, if it's an issue over here, it's an issue over here or let's, Oh, Hey, we solved that two years ago. Let me help you fix it. Like, Mm -hmm. I just, I don't know. I hate reinventing the wheel. I can't stand it. Like if someone else has already figured this out, like let's take a page from their book. I just, some of these problems have been around so long. I'm like, why, why are we still dealing with this? You can't tell me someone hasn't figured this out. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like, I don't know. I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of sharing. Um, I have to just, obviously for me right now in my current role, I just have to be careful of like, things that might be part of possible litigation, right? Mm -hmm, Like the legal team will have words. You've got to Mm -hmm. be within the regulatory compliance and, you know, HIPAA and all these things. And staff are entitled to privacy. Not every staff person is comfortable um, sharing their experience. You know, I try to be respectful of that too. Like, Mm -hmm. are you okay if I use this scenario as an example for your teammates and an in-service or something? And I try to ask those questions before I just start sharing stories. Cause not everybody's a fan, yeah. you know, that's probably that's someone's worst day at work. <laughs> yeah. That's a good <laughs> by point. <laughs> by the time you've had a day where we're talking about it in an in-service, like you've had a really bad day, you know? I, just, I mean, I just, I just air out all the dirty laundry. So for me, it's not a problem, but I understand what you're You saying. and I are an open book. Like I'm like, Oh, you want to see it? Yeah. Oh, I stepped in a giant pile of shit back there. Don't step in that. Like, oh, but smell my foot. Yeah. Oh my God. It's so gross. You guys smell this. Like it's so bad. Antra and I, we hold nothing back. We hold nothing back. No. Because you and I are of the mindset, like, I don't want to, I'm going to avoid that pile of shit. I don't want to step in it. Well, I think that's why for me, it was always so frustrating when it wasn't, when we didn't get those in services because I wanted to know. So I wouldn't step in that pile of shit. Oh my God. But I guess you're right. I have to tell you, I've been doing, um, Couple years ago, I started doing uh, medical expert witness. I was gonna just ask you about that. Cool. Well done. Good segue. It's the coolest thing. It is so fascinating. Like I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it because you get to see how people are charting. You get to look at workflows. You get to see other hospitals' policies. Like it is fascinating. And wait, you, how did you get into this? How did you get into like, it and tell yeah. some stories? Okay. All things come back to Karen Underwood. All things come to really? Karen. Yes. <laughs> she is the root of all the things. So she, um, 
it was year. It was several years ago. Now she and Josh Dodd, who's now the man or our manager at Proud Portland, um, used to work for this agency. And you basically can't participate in a case review if you know any of the parties, right? So the first thing to look at is, do you work for the organization that's being sued? So if it was a legacy case, I wouldn't get involved with it. And then um, if you know any of the key players, so the surgeons or anesthesiologists, they won't let you participate, right? Mm. For obvious reasons. So Karen had had passed on a case um, because she was too close to the people involved. And they were asking if she knew anyone else that was willing to do it. She was like, yeah, I, I know somebody. So she gave him my name and it worked <laughs> out great. It's yeah. really, it's really fascinating. Um, but anyway, you basically just have to, the expectation is you understand community standard. Like you have to understand what is a reasonable practice for a nurse in this scenario. And you have to, you have to balance that against what are the policies within their organization. You know, like, yes, they have an obligation to the employer to follow their rules, but there's also most importantly, your oath to protect the public (laughs) and do what's reasonable for the patient. So it's amazing. And there's so many examples that I want to share with my team that I can't because they're still in active litigation or they haven't been settled yet. But I'm like, oh my God, you guys. So does that mean you can't share them with us either? Well, I just, I think the thing I've, I can share a few things. I think the thing that, um, I've been kind of taken aback by in this process because it's always an OR case, right? Like they don't ask ask me to look at, they don't ask me to look at stuff that's gone sideways on a med surge unit. Like it's always OR related. Um, But people who don't under nurses who don't understand the gravity of their role in that they are the final gatekeeper to get that patient to surgery. It is 100% going to be your body under the bus wheels. If something is not right. If the consent's not complete, if the site's not marked, if the timeouts aren't done, like you are the gatekeeper. And I wish I could give real life current examples to my team of like, so here's an example of how, yeah, you might go get drinks with that surgeon after work because he's your buddy and you guys are in a running club together or whatever. But when it, when, when it hits the fan, you're not friends in court. And they're always going to look to who was the last person who wheeled this guy into surgery and what did they know and what did they do when something wasn't right? And it's always the nurse. It's always the nurse. And it's fascinating. I was reading, really? I was reading a chart. This was a couple of years ago now where the OR nurse literally testified that she doesn't work with orders. And I was like, wait, what? Like, the OR nurse who literally was a veteran 20, 30 year nurse. And the, and the attorney asked her several times, she's like, yeah, I don't, I don't work with orders. I'm not like a floor nurse. And I'm like, literally everything you do in an OR is based on orders coming out of a surgeon's mouth. And you have to document said orders in a record. Like, I don't like, there was no connection that her job had anything to do with following (laughs) orders of any type from a physician. I was like, what? So was that a standard accepted procedure at that hospital? Even though I'm sure in the policy it says a verbal order has to be written down and whatever. They just didn't? 
I, I don't, I can't wrap. I don't get any opportunity to talk. To gotcha. Gotcha. I can't like wrap my head around why you, but I'm like, even the lawyers who are not medical are like, that's bananas. Like there's <laughs> no way that that's true. Like this person's obviously lost sight of what their job is, but it's like, I mean, it's incredible to look at every single thing that you touch, especially an electronic record. Every time you open a window, how long you lingered on that window, how many times you went into the window, what, what day and time did you go into the window? Was it two days after surgery that you went back and looked at lab work or it's fascinating what they could see. (laughs) Epic tells all. Yes. And you are a Epic master. There's no secrets. That must, that must help you on your, in in that job. It's actually really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, And it's kind of fun to see. I can ask for things that they don't know to ask for because I uh know where they're hidden. Right. You know, Um, and where the tools built. Karen. So, and for our listeners, Amber um, was for, for part of her, um, part of her job at legacy. She was an Epic instructor when Epic came out. And so, um, and she was a fabulous instructor, actually. You were so, you were so great. But, um, yeah, so I, that's just so fascinating that, that you know all the ins and outs of Epic. So, yeah, it definitely helps. Um, and I do a ton of policy review within legacy. So I, I generally understand like most organizations will have a policy for X, Y, and Z. I understand a lot of the regulatory requirements. So having worn a lot of hats within legacy has helped me immensely in this job and then being so involved in the chapter with ARN mm-hmm. and just having access to other people in the community and be like, okay, we might have an issue or I saw this situation. Like, how are you guys dealing with this? Because I guarantee like none of the problems we face day to day, like we're not on an Island. Like everybody's dealing with some version of the same yeah. problem. Right. Just probably has a different set of faces and names behind it. So so where, where, are, where do you see yourself in five, 10 years? I mean, I feel like you've already done it all. Like I'm back. Oh, yeah. I have to go back to nursing. <laughs> yeah. How much, how often are you doing the witness thing? Um, you know, you, you kind of get put the medical witness. Part, yeah. You kind of get put in a rotation. Um, so you don't, you can't control like how frequently you get asked to be involved in cases. I probably do maybe one or two a year. Because uh, some of them can go on for some time. Like you'll think it's done, and then all of a sudden they send you like fifty pages of depositions. You're like, oh, I guess this is still going. So um, they can get drug out for quite some time, and they don't typically put you on more than one at a time. And with COVID, everything slowed way down in the court system, right? Because the mm-hmm. nothing was going in front of a judge. But um, yeah, I do love that. It's really nice. So, so like Antra said, what's on the horizon for you? Yeah. Cause you're the educator now and you've been an educator for a while, correct? Yeah. So I, I was in education and then when my oldest came early, um, I stepped down and mm-hmm. went back to staff nursing on the weekends for some childcare purposes. And then we moved to Eugene and I actually, while we were in Eugene, I worked in a ASC for two years, which mm. I really never thought I would do. And it was amazing. I loved it. You did. Uh, amazing team. What's an ASC? Uh, it's an ambulatory surgery center. Okay. And uh, <laughs> it was kind of funny. I tried to get a job at the local hospital, and they wouldn't hire me because I wasn't a new grad. Really? 
That's what the recruiter told me. She's like, well, I only some orientation. Like I could hit the ground running. I don't want benefits. I just want to be on call. And she was like, yeah, the only posi- open positions I have are for new grads. I was like, okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah, I spent two years at an orthopedic um, ambulatory surgery center and the people there were just incredible. And I learned a ton. Um, but when we moved back to Portland, I kind of got shoulder tapped by my current manager to come back in to do some quality-based projects. Like it was like an affiliate arm of education because they were having some clinical issues. And then um, in the first few months I was there, the existing department educator left. And so I just transitioned into that role. But I don't know about the five-year plan, to be honest. I'm, uh, I have two kids under five. <laughs> I have a four and a half and a two and a half year old and I'm very fortunate in that I don't have to work full time financially. Um, but I really, really love my team right now. It's hard for me to not like just be there all the time because <laughs> I just want to solve all the problems and fix all the things. <laughs> no, I was going to say. So it's a little challenging. I will say um, I feel pretty confident right now that I don't want to go back into management. Um that really great for my time as a manager, but it's not a hat I want to wear again. I think middle management is the, pits. the most, <laughs> it's the worst. I have the, I have the most empathy for middle management. You could possibly imagine. <laughs> it's horrible. I felt so bad for you when you were the manager. <laughs> well, and the irony of my time as a manager is that when I left, they literally split my old job into like five different people's jobs. I know. I was like, oh, cool. Like they gave me a secretary. So that helped save my sanity for a few years. Um, but it was horrible. Like there was nothing. I had no, no help. It was like, do you remember, Andre, you were charge nurse. It was like charge nurse and then manager. And I was on call 24 seven. It was, it was ridiculous. It was terrible. For four, you, de- for four departments. Do you, yes. Do you, so do you, do you feel um, more suited for the educator role? I do. Um, I'm so really. It, I kind of get the feeling, though, that the educator role has a lot more to do with than just education. Based yeah, on- it's. I, I could see myself doing something related to quality. Um, I really love regulatory compliance. I mean, don't get me wrong; I don't always agree with the rules. But Are you a Virgo? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Libra. I'm a Libra. No, okay, okay. You have it just as much sense. You know, the justice scale gets thrown off when things are yeah. out of whack. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love I, rules. I love regulations. Yeah. Karen, Karen is the exact opposite of you. Makes, so you know. My head explode. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, there's gotta, you can't have someone like me on your team. Otherwise it'll just be total anarchy. Like, you know, joint commission will come in and everyone's like, Oh crap. <laughs> what do we do? Yeah, absolutely. I love yeah. It. I'm, I mean, if every, every helium balloon needs a weight. Yeah. <laughs> perfect way to put it yeah i mean i just flow out into the ether and never come down if i didn't have people like you that were grounded that energy (laughs) yes i'm gonna bring you back down into the stratosphere yeah that's right but but without people like me the weights would never look up (laughs) you would never look for more yeah yeah i i don't know i love process improvement i love doing like big uh, deep dive quality projects. I like fixing shit that's been broken for a long time. I'm like, well, no one's, I, I like doing strategic work and not just reactive work. Like 
everything in middle management is putting out fires. That's all you're fucking doing all the time. The worst. It's like you're. It's like whack-a-mole. It's like, oh, I got that one down. Oh, I, I, that, there's something else. It's like if it's not policy, it's procedure, it's staffing, it's it's personalities, it's constant. So I would rather put my energy on undoing something that's going to, you know, Cleaning up all the dead leaves in the newspapers that are catching on fire. I mean, like, why don't we just make fire less possible instead of putting them out? I want to make it better for the staff and for the patients. Like, and let's, you know, let's unpack the nonsense that nobody's had time to do. Like, the burnout is so high when you get above, what, charge nurse. Like, Mm -hmm. nobody stays for more than two or three years, and you don't have time to get anything done. You can't Mm -hmm. build effective teams in that time. You can't change policy in that time. Like, it's glacial. So it's that part of the job of, like, it being very slow to get see reward or, like, Mm -hmm. the fruit of your labor is Mm -hmm. very painful. But I'm tenacious, so that's, like, I'm okay with that. I will keep... I'll keep asking the whys and like, okay, what the hell? Let's fix this. Let's do this. Like I'm, I'm that bulldog. I'll just take it and keep going. So I'm sure. Oh, I'll, man. I'm sure I, that was I, just from, just from start to finish from soup to nuts, like from how you were as a kid to what you do now. It's just like, that was really cool. That the, the, the string of your bulldogness, you know, <laughs> the dog with the bone throughout the whole thing yeah. and everything just kind of formed around that, you know, all of your career, how you were with your family, how you were in the thing. And then, you know, as a 20 year old in the OR and blah, blah, blah. that, that bulldog determination and unf with ability. Totally yeah. unfuckable. I mean, unfuck with like, <laughs> You're plenty fuckable, Amber. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I meant. Yeah. I mean, I saw that the moment you got on this screen. Oh my gosh. But I can remember just like, you know, it was always a pleasure to be in the same room as on the same team as Amber, because, you know, I, I can be a bulldog too, but like there was just, you knew like everybody was going to mind their P's and Q's if Amber was in there. I'll never, I'll never forget. I had a, um, I had a colleague <laughs> who was scrubbed and they were doing something that's like, you know, against the basics, like OR 101. And I called them out on it. I'm like, listen, it, you're in a room full of people and you're not doing the right thing while everyone's watching. Like, I'm going to socially shame you a little bit, put a little cultural pressure on you. I was like, um, you got to pull this tray out and like, check your filters. Like, have we, have we lost sight of like the basics here? And that person kind of gave me a begrudging, like, oh, guess well, I, <laughs> the next day I went in and I don't remember what the exact circumstances were, but it was something I overheard them saying to like their lunch relief, like, oh, I better check this because Amber's coming in. <laughs> I was like, I'm not, I'm not sure that's the best reputation to have, but I was like, you don't get yeah. to like, do the wrong thing. Yeah, like, just do the right thing. I just was like, complacency is not an option here. Like, it is not. You're in the wrong business. Yeah, I mean, I I love what you said, and I think it's a great, it's a great thing to kind of finish on because it's a great finale. Like, I like to do business with people who believe in karma. Yeah, you know, or or have a sense of that because they self. You don't. If I'm worried about my 
soul, my moral, you know, makeup. And that person's worried about theirs. It's a highly unlikely that they're going to try to screw me over. And if that happens, they didn't mean it, you know, yeah. and, and, and there's a way that we can communicate through it because they're just, they have a good moral compass. Yeah. What you just described, I mean, you get it in any, you know, whether you're in business or, you know, the, the moms that your kids play sports with or in an OR or anywhere else, you know, in, in the world, there's the, what you just described as somebody doing it because someone's watching. Yeah. And the people that, you know, you look to work with who do it because they don't want to burn in hell. (laughs) I mean, you know, like, (laughs) no, or even better than that, because that's what they would want. Yeah. Well, and it's, I, I remember so clearly growing up, like, I mean, my mom, you know, getting divorced with young kids and she was just so ingrained in us. Like you have to learn how to take care of yourself. You know, the, all those, all those like cliches about pay yourself first and, you know, all the stuff that in hindsight, I was like, oh, that was kind of cheesy. But then my dad would be like, you always leave it better than you found it. Like if he borrowed someone's car, he would return it washed and vacuumed and full of gas. Like if I've made a mess, that's okay, but I'm going to clean it up. So the next person doesn't walk in and find it. Like, I don't like making more work for other people. It just feels gross to me. I don't, I'm just not a fan. Like, well, because you wouldn't want it done to you. I mean, and that's kind of the point. So like cleaning up other people's messes. I'm just not a fan of that. So I like, I like leaving it better than I found it. And I don't know. I feel like part of that ethic is just doing the right thing. Like regardless of who's watching, not needing, not needing the attaboy for it, but just because it's the right thing to do. It's such a perfect place for you to be Amber, because there's so many opportunities in an operating room to do the right thing. So if, if uh, someone was listening to this and is impressed with you as I am, and and Antra's been impressed with you, obviously, because she. (laughs) you know, a couple times. Um, <laughs> um, if they wanted to reach out to you, so maybe they're thinking of becoming an OR nurse or thinking of transitioning or have heard something you've said, you know, they're a manager or someone who works in, and want your ideas and how they could do it better and how you've done it better. How would they reach out to you? Okay. I'm always available. I love, love, love talking to people about the OR. Uh, AmberMoore.nurse at gmail.com. This is, this is so fun. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Amber. Thanks, Amber. That was awesome. (laughs) You guys, that's a wrap. What a great podcast. If you're a nurse, head over to www.rnegade.pro. Follow the prompts, do the activity, fill out the evaluation for the podcast that you just listened to, and get a CE. Could we just make CE by podcast the norm? Please. Bye.